You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Lord, we are grateful this morning for your word and its, its profound depth, and yet it's easy to understand because of the, the work your Holy Spirit can do in our lives, and you bring it to us as we need it. Father, as we study this morning, we, look at, uh, we begin to look at at least the initial idea of this, the, uh, the communion, the cup of communion. Remind us, Lord, how important that is as we celebrate what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us on the cross and how it has changed us and how it has blessed us and how we have become your children, truly. Lord, as we, as we look into this this morning, I pray that you would give us clarity of thought, that we would be able to understand the terms, and that, Father, we would come away with it, come away from it with a more profound and deeper love for the Lord Jesus Christ, for all he has done, for the incredible work he did on the cross, rising again and giving to us life eternal. We'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read through um, chapter 10, and odds are we're going to make it, make it to about verse, wow, three pages on one verse, what did I do there? <laughs> Maybe verse 16. We finished on 15 last week, and we're going to make it all the way through 16, I think. <clears throat> chapter 10, 1 Corinthians I'm going to read through verse 20. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, remember that, and drank the same spiritual drink, remember that, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. 
I'm going to finish up with verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share the table. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Today, we're going to look at, in some detail, the communion that we that we share, uh, usually once a month, and uh, how important it is, how it fits into this section of First Corinthians, where the Corinthians were struggling with idolatry. They were struggling with going to the temples and partaking of the meat there, and therefore involving themselves in a celebration that had nothing to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing to do with the sacrifice He he made on the cross, nothing to do with his resurrection, nothing to do with the blessing that comes from being one in Christ and being a partaker of his body and his blood. Now notice here that Paul starts out with the cup and then the body. And there's a number of reasons why that might have happened. But just before this, he said something to maybe tie up what he had said and to prepare them for what he is going to say. Um, the Corinthians, we'll find out later, were really fouling up. They, they were just, they were first in the ancient Guinness Book of World Records of how to screw up Scripture, how to live it wrong, how to, to, to mess up to the max. And they were fouling up the Lord's table, the, the Lord's supper. And Paul will get into that later in chapter 11. But in chapter 10, there's sort of an introduction in connection with the idolatry that was occurring in the, in the temples. So he said, I speak to you as wise men. You judge what I say. So he's, he trusts them. He trusts them to be Berean, as we've talked about, to, to think about what he's going to say, what he has said, and what he's going to say. The Corinthians, they prided themselves in their wisdom, and Paul is willing to give them an inch, at least there. He's going to appeal to that wisdom. He's, he's convinced that as they submit to Scripture... And as they obey the Holy Spirit, God will cause them to come to the right conclusion. Um, and, and sometimes, I think when we, when we need to realize that as well, that when people are truly saved, and they are truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we can, we can spread the table in front of them, the Lord's table, and they will get it because of, the, because of the Holy Spirit, not because of the teacher. And so that's what Paul is trusting in today or at least what we're going to discuss today, he is trusting the Holy Spirit to allow the Corinthians to rightly judge what he's saying. So, let's look at verse 16, which is about as far as we're going to get today. Um, he says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? So, in ancient tradition... Uh, this ancient tradition was well established at the Passover and is carried through to this day in Jewish communities. They celebrate the Passover with four cups and in some cases five, although <laughs> some of it is shrouded in such um, historical possible inaccuracies, at least in the Jewish tradition, that they're not sure. They may actually conflate two cups and there's still only four and we'll talk about them so you can kind of see where this is coming from. But So I looked it up in the Jewish Encyclopedia so I could get it direct, if you will, from the horse's mouth. Um, that 
how they celebrate the Passover, what the cups are called, what Paul was referring to, and, and what Jesus was referring to in the upper room at the Last Supper. So how the cup became a Passover symbol remains a mystery. This is from uh, the Jewish Encyclopedia, from one of their encyclopedias. We do know that by the time Jesus observed the Passover, drinking a cup during the meal, actually this is from a Christian interpretation, a well-respected Christian encyclopedia interpreting, and then I'll get to the Jewish one, excuse me. So this is from that. Um, we do know uh, that by the time Jesus observed the Passover, drinking a cup during the meal was an official part of the observance. In fact, an ancient rabbinic source, the Mishnah, instructs those celebrating to drink from the cup four times during the Passover Seder. Um, and then there's the, re there's the uh, reference. The tradition remains to this day. Each time the cup is filled, it has a different name. So they would fill it up and the first cup would be called, Options, opinions vary as to what certain cups actually symbolize. Most agree that the first cup is the Kedush, which means sanctification. With this cup, the Jews, we, begin the Passover Seder. The second cup is called the cup of plagues. And I'll develop this a little bit more as we go on. The third cup is referred to as either the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing, most likely the cup Paul was talking about. The fourth cup is often called the Hallel, which means praise, though some traditions call it the cup of acceptance, which still others use as the cup of Elijah. The latter combine the second cup, plagues, with Hallel, because we praise God for the plagues he used to bring us out of Egypt. Jewish tradition says little else about the cups, though we're told they should be filled with red wine to remind us of the blood of the Passover lamb. And see how easily that translates into the lamb which take away, takes away the sin of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is from the Jewish, as you can see, they, don't, they leave the O out of God so they don't say his name. And I wanted to be faithful to that and leave that as we, as we look at this. So it says, God uses four expressions of redemption in describing our exodus from Egypt and our birth as a nation. Number one, I will take you out. Number two, I will save you. Number three, I will deem you, number, redeem you. And number four, I will take you as a nation. Our sages, say the Jewish encyclopedias, instituted that we should drink a cup of wine, a toast, if you will, for each one of these expressions. We recite the Kaddush over the first cup. We read the Exodus story from the Haggadah over the second cup. We recite the grace after meals over the third cup, the cup of blessing. And we sing the big Hallel, psalms and hymns of praises to God over the fourth cup. During the Seder, we can experience... We'll get to that in a minute. During the Seder, we can experience the elements of, re of redemption in a spiritual sense. There are a number of explanations as to the significance of the various stages of redemption conveyed through each of these expressions. Here is one. The first is salvation from harsh labor. This began as soon as the plagues were introduced. Second is salvation from servitude, or the day the Jews left Egypt geographically and arrived at Ramses. Third, the splitting of the sea, after which the Jews felt completely redeemed without fear of the Egyptians recapturing them, and fourth, becoming a nation at Sinai. There's actually a fifth expression in the above-mentioned verses, and I will bring you to the land which I promised to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as an inheritance. While the exodus from Egypt and the birth of the Jewish nation were permanent, we have yet to be brought to Israel on a permanent basis. The honor, in honor of this verse, we have a fifth cup at the Seder, the cup of Elijah. And this is where there are differing opinions. Some groups believe there are five cups. Others combine two and call this the fourth cup. This cup is set up for Elijah during the second half of the Seder, but we do not drink it. Elijah will announce the, uh, the survival, announce the arrival of Mashiach, Messiah, 
See how perfectly this ties in. And will bring all Jews to Israel for good. It is this third cup, commonly called the cup of blessing, that Paul refers to in this verse. Normally, and in celebration of communion, the bread comes first, and then the cup. Here, probably because Paul uh, intends to expand on the idea of the bread later, uh, he speaks of the cup first. This cup may have been used by Jesus as the symbol of his blood, which was shed for sin. It was later, it later became the instrument for instituting the Lord's Supper. We and the Corinthians bless the cup of blessing because of the incredible significance it holds for us. It is the shed blood that we are sim symbolically partaking of, symbolically partaking of, that washes away sin and makes us acceptable to God. Each time we do it, we do it in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. It is, it is, a, it is a, a mysterious in, in one point, one way, and, and yet a very understandable celebration. Sometimes, um, I'm not sure we all, we may not all completely understand exactly the significance of the celebration of communion until we go to be with Christ. How incredible what he did was in, on so many levels that as we, as we advance and as we become more and more familiar with Scripture, we begin to understand more and more of it. Um, further than that, when we share the bread of communion, it is a sharing in the body of Christ. We remember and celebrate his humanness his incarnation, his death on the cross, the giving of his life for the salvation of believers. It is important to remember, however, that this body, his body was not actually broken as we break the bread. That's a symbol of partaking, of, 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 uh, of all of us partaking of the bread of the body of Christ. The scripture reminds us in John 19.36, For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken, which is from Psalm 34, verse 20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. When Jesus broke the bread at the Last Supper, which was the first communion dinner, he distributed among the disciples what a representation of him sharing his life with all of them. He is able... The Son of God is able to share himself with all of the elect, with all of the believers. The Lord's Supper and subsequent to that, to that, the communion celebrations that we share together are spiritual experiences. The bread, and the bread and the wine, however, remain just that, bread and wine. Or, as we do it, I believe they're, are they crackers? Crackers and grape juice. The, the point and the importance is the symbolism, the connection with what the Lord Jesus Christ did and how we do it. What would you do in a society that did not have access to those things, but they wanted to celebrate communion? Do you think the Lord would look down on a small group of people who couldn't make their own wine and whose bread was some sort of rough wheat uh, substitute celebrating communion with bread or with water and bread? Do you think he would look down? No, he would not, because it's the significance, it's the symbolism, it's what they are celebrating that is far more important. What are, we, what are we celebrating the mornings that we celebrate communion? We're celebrating the blessed Lord Jesus, what he did for us, how it changed us, how it brought us into communion with the Father. We're not celebrating food. If it was that way, let's have pizza and Coke. <laughs> We have a hand of testimony for pizza and Coke, and it needs pineapple on it. I don't want to, it's so important to recognize that it's the symbolism, it's what we are recognizing that Jesus Christ has done for us that is far more important than the elements. But the elements are a part of it. And so it has been so 
misunderstood and twisted over the centuries. Um, I would, I'm just going to go through this. There are, there are two alternate theories that have been put forth for how the elements interact in the communion celebration. One of them is called transubstantiation. How many of you have heard of transubstantiation? It's actually a subway entrance on 45th and 13th in New York City. No. I, I joke because... Okay, let's just go into this. The Roman Catholic doctrine that the bread and wine used in the Lord's Supper or Eucharist actually become the literal body and blood of Christ at the consecration by the ordained priest. That's what transubstantiation is. That those elements are no longer bread and no longer wine. They are flesh and blood. <laughs> this is based on a super literal reading of Christ's words, this is my body which is broken for you, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, and on his joining discourse, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Roman Catholics believe that by the words, do this in commemoration of me, Luke 22, 19, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Christ made the apostles priests, Moreover, he decreed that they and other priests should offer his body and blood. The second misunderstanding of this is called consubstantiation. It is a philosophical theory that, like the competing theory of transubstantiation, attempts to describe the nature of the Christian Eucharist in concrete metaphysical terms. It holds that during the sacrament, the fundamental substance of the body and blood of Christ are present alongside the substance of the bread and wine, which remain present. Transubstantiation differs from consubstantiation in that it postulates that through consecration by the priest, one set of substances, bread and wine, is exchanged for another, the body and blood of Christ, or that according to some, the reality of the bread and wine become the reality of the body and blood of Christ. The substance of the bread and wine do not remain, but their accidents, superficial properties like appearance and taste, remain. Consubstantiation is commonly, though erroneously, associated with the teachings of Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon. Lutheran teachings reject any attempt to explain philosophically the means by which Christ is present in the Eucharist. Luther, Luther did teach that <coughs> excuse me, the body and blood of Christ are present, <coughs> quote, in, with, and under the forms, unquote, of bread and wine. And present-day Lutherans hold to this statement while disagreeing about its exact meaning. Some Lutherans do use the term consubstantiation to refer to this belief, but the theology intended is not the same as the philosophical theory described above. Luther, Luther illustrated this belief about the Eucharist, quote, by the analogy of the iron put into the fire, whereby both fire and iron are united in the red-hot iron, and yet each continues unchanged, unquote. A concept which he called sacramental union. So consubstantiation is affirmed by a minority of Christians, including some Eastern Orthodox churches. This whole idea is anathema to Scripture. Christ cannot be sacrificed again because he was offered, Hebrews 9.28, once for all, once to bear the sins of many. Further, his body and blood are not in place of the bread and wine, nor alongside of them. Here are some of the verses that the Catholic Church uses to, to substantiate substan transubstantiation. Say that three times fast. Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. John 6, 52 and 53. The Jews therefore began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus therefore said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. And then 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. therefore, 
Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. What did Paul call that, by the way? We'll get to this. He called it bread and the cup. Further, Roman Catholic tradition requires that the congregants actually worship the Eucharist. I took this out of their teaching, out of their, their substantive teaching that's well represented on the Internet. Uh, this was out of um, Vatican VA Doc Archive, or slash archive. 1376, the Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring because Christ, what I'm doing this for is I want you to understand that this isn't just things that Protestants have said over the years that Catholics do. This is directly out of their teaching. So I'm not, I'm not quoting Luther, I'm not, or excuse me, I'm not quoting Calvin, I'm not quoting James White, I'm, I'm quoting Catholic teaching. Because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly His body that He was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God, and this Holy Council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of His blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Second, the Eucharistic presence of Christ begins at the moment of the consecration and endures as long as the Eucharistic species subsist. Christ is present the whole and entire time, the present whole and entire in each of the species and whole and entire in each of their parts in such a way that the breaking of the bread does not divide Christ. And last, the worship of the Eucharist. In the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by, among other ways, genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. The Catholic Church has always offered and still offers to the sacrament of the Eucharist the cult of adoration, not only during Mass, but also outside of it, reserving the consecrated hosts with the utmost care, exposing them to the solemn veneration of the faithful and carrying them in procession. And I can say, as a young boy, uh, when I was an altar boy, I think I was seven, if you dropped those things, it was all over. It was all over for you. You were dead on the spot. I remember that. I remember being terrified of dropping the, the, what we were supposed to bring to the priest. In dealing with this heretical doctrine, we need to look at scriptural corrections. And I thought we should go through this, if for no other reason, that it will, it will give us good foundation on some of the, the basic teachings of scripture on other areas. There is no indication, number one, there is no indication that the words were meant to be taken literally. In numerous places in Scripture, Christ refers to himself as an object, as objects. He said, I am the bread of life, John 6, 48. I am the door, John 10, 9, 7 and 9. I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. I am the true vine, John 15, 1. Jesus often referred to himself as things, as, sub as substances. Number two, during the upper room, excuse me, in John chapter 6, he clearly tells the disciples that he is speaking in that section in spiritual terms. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Number two, during the upper room communion, scripture refers to the elements 
as bread and wine. Matthew 26, 26 through 29. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine. What is the fruit of the vine? Go ahead, you can say it out loud. Wine, which he just had the disciples partake of. I will not partake of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What was Jesus drinking? He called it the fruit of the vine. This clearly refers to wine, not blood. Number three, when Paul explains to the Corinthians later in this epistle how they were violating the communion dinner, which was commonly partaken of by churches, he describes the elements as bread and the cup, which was clearly a container with wine in it. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 28. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It was a remembrance. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a proclamation of the Lord's death. It's a remembrance. It's a sacrament. It's a sacrament. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Number four. Nothing in the Gospels nor in the Epistles indicate that the Apostles ever concluded that the elements that were partaken of in the communion service were anything but bread and wine. In the upper room, that's what they considered it. Number five, none of the Apostles nor the disciples ever worshipped the bread or the wine. Not in Acts, not in any of the Epistles. Number six, the Mass supposedly reenacts the sacrifice of Christ. Because Jesus had not yet gone to the cross in the upper room communion service, how could the bread be his body and how could the wine be his blood when he was standing right there? The sacrifice had not occurred yet. Number seven. This view is a violation of the Levitical law, which was certainly still in effect prior to, uh, prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Leviticus 17, 14. For as for the life of all flesh... It is its blood is identified with its life. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, you are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is in its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. The Catholic view is that this is the actual body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore it appears that they would be consuming it in a cannibalistic way. The counterargument that this was a new covenant instituted by Jesus and therefore communion would operate under the new set of rules is insufficient because the new covenant would not be instituted until after the death of Jesus. Hebrews 7, 9, 15-17 For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Number eight, it violates the doctrine of the incarnation. 
When Christ became a man, he did not give up his divinity. He remained fully God and became fully man. In his godhood, he is omnipresent, but in his flesh, he is not. That is, his human body cannot be in two places at once. It cannot be both in the right hand, at the right hand of the Father and at the same time located on multiple plates and in numerous cups all over the world. John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had before with you before the world was. Here, Jesus claimed the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed, and he was laying claim to it again upon his resurrection, not in any sense that he had given up the glory, but that he would be restored to it from his human sojourn on earth. He would still have the body of a man, but he would again have full expression of his deity. Number nine and may very well be, at least in my mind, the most important one, although all of Scripture is important, equally important. The Lord's Supper is not another sacrifice of Christ. What the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross, He did once for all, never to be repeated, never needing to be repeated as the multiple sacrifices of the Old Testament did. Hebrews 10, 10 through 12. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. When he said it is finished, it was. And that it is finished, as many of you probably already know, is in the perfect tense, it was a once-for-all happening in time with ongoing consequences for eternity. What Christ finished at the cross was the redemption of the elect. His sacrifice never had to be repeated. He doesn't have to die multiple times. He doesn't have to be present in a, on, on this planet again until the second coming. What he did was once for all, he sits at the right hand of the Father in glory. And as we celebrate the communion, we celebrate that glory. We celebrate that finished work. And it should be a wonder to us all. Um, this actually, my, my, if you will, my indentured service study through this section, I just, I was re, I was, uh, reacquainted with the unbelievable work that the Lord Jesus Christ did. Can any one of us save ourselves? And yet it cost the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the body and the blood of the Son of God. It cost it for all eternity. His death is, was final. It does not have to be repeated. I don't know if I can say that too many times. That is a glorious thing. Can you imagine what it would be like if it had to be repeated again and again for each and every person? Unbelievable, the carnage and the ridiculous aspect attending it. The conclusion of the matter is very simple. The cup of thanksgiving and the bread we break are symbols of the grace for all one awesome sacrifice of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, which purchased final redemption for his elect children forever. When we celebrate communion, when the Corinthians celebrated communion, they and we should look back to this once-for-all incredible work the Son of God did in thanksgiving and in adoration. I have to say it helped me Sometimes when I celebrate communion, it's, it's a duty, it's something we do, and, and I don't know that I'll look at it the same anymore. 
Um, and I'm, I'm not one given to much emotion other than, I don't know, maybe for grandkids or something, but, but this, this holds new significance. At least it began to hold new significance for me as it made me realize that the connection that Paul wanted the Corinthians to make was don't be idolaters. And then he comes to this section. And after he says to them, do not, do not be idolaters, he says to flee idolaters, flee idolatry. Anything other than a proper understanding of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we are celebrating in a, in a symbolic way is idolatry. If we believe that he is present in the, in the elements, it's idolatry. If we believe that he is alongside the elements, it's idolatry. It's very simple. Um, and, and Jesus, <laughs> Jim and I and, and, and Josh were talking about this this morning. Sometime, or I, it wasn't Josh, it was somebody else, and I'm too old to remember who it was because it was more than 10 minutes ago. But sometimes God says things for us to answer. He asks a question. He puts something out there for us to answer. And even the answer isn't for God, it's for us. Do we understand this? And so we're going to finish a little early today because I, 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 I didn't finish verse 17, but uh, that's the only reason. It's a practical situation. But to conclude anything other than that the work of Christ was a final work done once for all is to conclude in idolatry. And that was what Paul is warning the Corinthians against. He said, Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless. Do we bless that cup? Do you bless that cup? Are you grateful for that cup? Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? No, his body wasn't broken. Not a bone of him was broken. And it sat all of, all of the things that happened to Christ on that cross uh, culminated in something like 300 prophecies, and every single one of them was fulfilled, including that one. But when the bread is broken, it's broken and distributed to each of us because we partake, all of us, in the body of Christ. And it's, it should be considered for, by us a glorious thing. Are there any questions or comments or additions? Well, you're going to have eight extra minutes of life today to do something with Let's pray. Father, I, I'm not certain we can ever plumb all the depths of the sacrifice that, that the Trinity made to send the Son of God to redeem an undeserving, disgusting, vile mankind who wouldn't even look in your direction if it wasn't for the work you did. You gave us the faith. It was not of ourselves because we would boast. And then... You changed us. We were redeemed. We became children of God. We became the elect. And Father, we are so grateful for that. And once a month we celebrate it. Other uh, places, other bodies celebrate it more often. Some celebrate it less. The point is, it's a celebration to remind us of the once for all sacrifice that was accomplished on that day 2,000 plus years ago in which the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, gave himself for us. Once for all, finished. We thank you for that. And this morning we just, uh, we ask you to impart to us more and more each day 
the ability to understand as much as humankind can what you have done for us. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.